Madam Clerk, are we good to go? We are good to go. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the February 23rd, 2022 QPSC. Um, let's go into a roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee is going to be late today. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Esteen. Here. And Trustee Jensen will also be late. We do not have a quorum. Oh, my. So we do not have a quorum. So just to inform our chief medical officer, our medical staff and the like, we're gonna push the consent agenda to the end of the meeting with the hopes that we get a quorum uh, by, by the end of this meeting. So we're gonna be doing a little bit of jumping. Apologize if everyone will make some adjustments. Well, I'll, I'll buy everyone a little bit of time with the articles that we've had. So let's uh, open up the meeting with our purpose. Here's the purpose of the QPSC, which we read every time. The QPSC is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies and monitoring of organizational quality assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs at Alameda Health System. The QPSC is charged with continuing the practice of direct communication with its medical staff leaders on issues of clinical operations and patient care. Um, with that, um, Madam Clerk, do we have any public comment? We do not. We do not. Okay. Let's go to um, item A, which are the articles which we have. Two articles included here. The first was, uh, it seemed to be pretty timely at, at, at the time, but you know we're a month later and boy, the world feels already a little bit different. This, this article sort of struck me. It was entitled, Anti-Vaccine Patients Vent Anger on Healthcare Workers Like Me. It takes a toll on care. This was written by the uh, ICU director at UCSD, uh, Dr. Venkatesh Ramnath. And uh, 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 while for me, my, my personal experience, this didn't seem to resonate with my experience uh, at Alameda Health System, I have a number of friends and colleagues at various uh, locales within the United States with varying colors, be they, be they red or blue. And boy, do, do I get a lot of responses from them. I, I'd like to just start off with a quote and open it up for any comments on those of us who were able to read that article because it could be, it was a little bit jarring. Um, just to, you know, I pick out a, a few selected quotes. Many providers have become inured to uninformed rebuffs of medical recommendations, including vaccination. Educational efforts have devolved into counterproductive debates. Far from heroes or even compassionate advocates for health, providers are viewed as biased technicians with dubious motives. One response to this emotional onslaught is, understandably, attrition. Most veteran ICU nursing staff have left. Some physicians now contemplate non-clinical work or early retirement. There are certainly no solutions here. Uh, we must set realistic expectations early and often during hospitalizations. Hospitals must provide more palliative care, social work, and other support services. There certainly needs to be more public health messaging and more resources and security for medical systems and healthcare workers. So um, I'll just open this up. You know, we actually have a small audience this evening, but I'll open it up first to uh, Trustee Esteen, then, then any of our med staff leaders or executives on, 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 on this article. Trustee Esteen, I'll give you first, first go if you have anything. Thank you, yeah, I, I am so grateful that our COVID numbers are declining precipitously across the country and within our system as well. And 
you know, I worry that as we shift into endemic mode for this virus that, and all of its you know, contagions to come, I, I hope that people can tolerate um, the response that is gonna be necessary, that is gonna take all of us to continue to mask, to continue to accept vaccinations and technologies that maybe we haven't seen before. Um, and with that, my heart just breaks constantly for my fellow providers who are in the face of this day in and day out. Um, so thank you for sharing this article. And I'm so glad we're in a better place this month than we were when this article was written, but it's gonna be a long road for everyone to begin remembering that uh, we've had vaccines for a long time and the technology changed the world for the better, starting with smallpox and polio and, you know, we really revolutionized care. So I hope people can remember that this is not a new process and it, it saves lives really. Thank you, Trustee Yassine. Yeah, it feels like uh, there have been some fundamental shifts here and, and whether they're gonna stick or not, we have to see. Um, I'll go with uh, Mr. Frasky for a comment and then Dr. Tornabene. Thanks, Trustee Bouquet. I think one thing that struck me, which I haven't really thought about through this whole pandemic is the fact that medicine is so based in research and science, but yet physicians are having the practice outside of best practices. They're feeling compelled to in ordering drugs and or procedures that aren't necessarily based in science because it's what people want. Um, and the pressure on physicians to be able to have to, or feel like they have to, um, the only way they could probably get through it is to placate um, some of the patients they're seeing by way of um, ordering things that um, might not be scientifically based or best practice. And I just thought, man, when you're a profession and you're, you know, your whole life you studied research and science um, and you know best practices to be, um, I don't know, to have to even consider that has to be really difficult. Yes, sir. Thank you for those. Evening, Dr. Tornabene. Good evening. Yeah, and I, I mean, just following on your comment, Mark, also is um, with that also the cognitive dissonance of having to make decisions about a virus that we're constantly still learning about and learning about therapeutics um, for them. There, there's also that piece in, in that, that quote Taft, that you pulled out was the one that, that caught my eye too. And specifically within that, the phrase emotional onslaught, which emotional onslaught. so accurate and, and as something that not just healthcare personnel are feeling, but I think, you know, patients and the community are feeling as well, this constant change and emotional onslaught of, of, of living through a pandemic with guidance that really continues to change and evolve. It's just, it's so challenging. And then when you have healthcare personnel who are exhausted and having to care for patients surge after surge, it truly does feel just like this constant onslaught of, of inputs. Yeah. It's sort of amazing. And I, I think we previously discussed uh, as we were talking about strategy before, it's sort of a, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the mid tens, uh, uh, when we're talking about organizational strategy, many organizational strategies were to be apolitical. And, and in this day, day and age, it becomes different. And uh, I do have friends, you know, I'm from Texas and I have friends who 
been uh, in positions where they, if they didn't prescribe ivermectin, they were concerned or scared or what have you. And, uh, you know, maybe it's our location. It is our location in the politics of the Bay Area, which have probably given us some degree of protection from this, but still, it is what it is. And uh, it's, it's, a tough, uh, it's a tough thing to swallow. So uh, good, good for everybody that, that COVID numbers are, are on the, the decline, but there will be something next, right? And then where do we go from there? Any other comments from uh, anyone in the, in the audience on this article, number one? Uh, Mr. Jackson, sir. Thank you very much. I um, Not to take away, because I never would from the impact on, on the direct caregivers, but it affects all of us. And you all receive my correspondence in regards to you know, issues of the day that are germane to the life of the hospital. And many of you know that I've received caustic emails from staff, employees of AHS, who one gentleman told me to stick to my job, stop being political. And he encouraged me to um, listen to Joe Rogan's podcast to help straighten, straighten me out. And so I thanked him and I declined to listen to Joe Rogan, but that's, that's the milieu, that's the world that we're living in. And so I'm, I'm very concerned for our caregivers on the front line who on a day-to-day -day basis, in addition to making life and death decisions, have to now try to navigate the, the myriad political minds, landmines that are out there. And so we need and we must provide them with all the support possible while they're doing this unbelievable task. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Jackson. So tough stuff. And uh, it looks like we're at, at a play, place where we're starting to maybe see a little bit of light and take a breath, but you know, there was Delta and then we have felt that. So, just being aware of this. And, and I think the word Dr. Tornabetti onslaught and, and it, it is, is an apropos one. So with that, we'll, uh, barring any, I see no other hands or uh, comments for article one. Article two was a long article, but I'm gonna keep it short. Um, um, I, I, uh, for those of you who know me, you know I love articles on process and, and that contemplate things. Now, uh, this article was entitled the top six, uh, the top six standardized safety practices in the US Army Medical Department treatment facilities worldwide. Now, um, uh, also for those of you who know me, I, I, I love studying military history and I, I find the Army to be fascinating as probably the military is one of the, the, the most robust leadership academies in the world. Um, uh, but one could argue that they bureaucratize themselves to death on, on many things. In this particular case, they, they, they spend a lot of time examining uh, uh, under, under this moniker of a top six, uh, which is sort of a theme that they do, top six uh, safety practices. And safety is the name of the game, especially in, in quality. And I find them to be a little bit fascinating. For those of you who are brave enough to read the article, there's a lot of good stuff in the article. You know, it's like a 16 pager. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little dense. I'm gonna summarize what the army has come to do as their top six safety practices in all their facilities. Number one, leader daily safety breathing, briefings, daily safety briefings. You know, I'll say that, that I think that our leaders do do safety briefings. Um, it may not occur on a daily basis, but what the Army did was they 
they empiricize it and they make this a metric which they manage. I'm not saying that's for us to do, but it's an interesting contemplation. It really arises safety to, 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 the, to the top of the game when it occurs from your leaders on a daily practice. Two, safety leadership rounds. This was sort of a broader perspective on leadership rounds. I actually think we do versions of this as well too. Um, uh, again, what the army did is they measured. And again, I'm not telling us to do that. I'm certainly not saying that. I'm just wondering, is this something that would allow us to elevate safety to, to again, the top of the game? Third, unit-based huddles. Well, on this, the organization invested a lot of time and, and uh, some of you may recall that uh, uh, these smile huddles, safety is the S, M is metrics, I is ideas, L is logistics, and E is encouragement. So I know on our unit, we, we strive to do a smile huddle every day. We're probably like 90%, we're not perfect. But, but again, what the army did was they measured that. I don't know how many smile huddles happen throughout the organization, but I find it to be an important come together for our team. And um, I think it, uh, on this one, uh, uh, at the unit level, it, 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 it was a really important one. Four, SBAR as a communication tool. Uh, again, for those of you who know me, you know I'm sort of a big fan of SBAR. And, and I think it, it, it's, a, it's a nice technique. I think that a lot of people within the system use this as their communication tool, they actually chose to measure it, uh, which is uh, very interesting. Uh, five, institution of briefs and debriefs for surgical cases. Actually, I apologize for my ignorance. I don't know if we do this. Um, I bet you we do this in some version, but again, what the army did was they chose to measure it. And last was the use of the universal protocol for vinyl, final verification for every procedure. And, and uh, I, I think this is a, an important one for us to do and for, for us to measure for those of us who read our safety reports. So again, it's, uh, this is just one of those articles which helps us to contemplate how others do it and maybe give a lens for which, how we can see things. Uh, I'm gonna open this up to trustee, sorry, I get to pick on trustee Esteen. And then I'm gonna go to uh, Dr. Tornabene who I know has some great thoughts and then I'll, I'll open up to anyone else. Trustee Esteen. I appreciate that you are a nerd for organ for process and for mm. military history. Um, <laughs> I'm becoming more of a process fan, but you know, honestly, a lot of this article feels like the kind of data that I prefer someone else to interpret. It's sad yeah. to say, but you know, we all have our strengths. Right. Um, and I do appreciate, I think what I like most is the approach and the, the understanding that time is required for improvement and that time and the investment um, of the team, really, this is what I get from it, that you know, the team rules all and that even when it's hard, even when it's uh, results that don't necessarily feel good, going through the process in order to make improvements uh, benefits the entire system. And this is a monster system. Well, Dr. Trustee Esteen, I think you got, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's just sort of like appreciating that this takes investment and, and part of the investment, we're spending board time to talk about it. So thank you for your thoughts on that. Dr. Tornabene, ma'am. 
Yeah, I, I just have to echo your comments, Dr. Bukat. Trustee Esteen, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, that quality improvement and patient safety takes time. It takes that, that investment. One of the things that I, I certainly liked about this article is to see that we here at AHS are well into this journey. You know, yeah. that elements of all of these here at, at AHS. And that felt really great to, to read this and be like, yes, I see this, this, this here. Does that mean that we're all the way there? No. I mean, we're on this journey towards, um, you know, improvement. And so there's, there's certainly things in all of these domains that, that we could improve. However, we have the building blocks and we just need to put them, you know, put more structure into place. Dr. Tornamani, I would agree with you. When I read that, I was I, I did the same thing. I, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, how much of these are we not? The, a decent amount of this is already uh, part of our culture, uh, and it's about systematizing it. Mm-hmm. Mr. Mr. Fratsky, sir. You know, I love the article. I loved I love the structure around the article. Um, you know, as an operator, you're always looking for structure and ways to incorporate the, the most current thinking. Um, I agree with Dr. Tornabeni. I also believe we have a long ways to go. And, you know, they were measuring those metrics that they were using were really used to hold people accountable too. You know, if you're one of the 5% outliers that isn't doing the smile huddle, um, it becomes, it becomes evident fairly quickly in an organization. So I like, I like how they did that. I also like, um, how they backed into their top six. They used the reset program where they yeah. sent in a team to the sites to evaluate every single um, Sentinel event. And through the, over the years, the trends in the Sentinel events backed them into their top six. And um, I thought, boy, that, that really makes a lot of sense. And, and frankly, the top six are probably um, could be structured in every single healthcare organization there is because they're very applicable to almost every healthcare entity. So I, I, I think whoever put that article out there, I, I printed it off and um, Dr. Tornabeni and I have been having a lot of discussion recently about quality. So this, we, we were just texting each other that this really makes sense in terms of what we're talking about today. So yeah. thank you for the article. Well, thank you both and uh, for reading it. Um, any other comments? All right, we're moving nicely. So with that, I'm gonna close out item A, which is the, the chair's report. Uh, just to recall for the audience, uh, uh, item B is usually our consent agenda. We do not have a quorum. So uh, boy, do we need to approve all these things. So we're gonna hold on uh, and we'll keep, uh, as soon as we get, uh, uh, a quorum, uh, which is just one trustee added, will move uh, back to the consent agenda, uh, say if we lose quorum. So with that, we'll, we'll just uh, hop, skip, and jump over to item C, which is, of course, our medical staff reports. Remember, part of our charter is to continue the practice of direct communication with our medical staff leaders. We should have three medical staff leaders in the room. One, two, I thought I saw Idris. Oh, there he is. Okay, so um, with that, uh, of course, we have Dr. Irina Williams, our Chief of Staff for uh, Highland slash San, San Leandro. We have Dr. Idris Afzali, uh, an emergency physician who uh, leads up our San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee. And we have Dr. Uh, Nikki Joshi, who's an emergency doctor who uh, heads our, uh, uh, who's our Chief of Staff 
for Alameda Hospital. Um, good evening, doctors. Um, let's go with Dr. Williams first this evening. Good evening, Dr. Williams. Good evening. Thank you for having me today. Um, I will start with my report. Um, as you can see in your packets, um, we changed the format a little bit of our reports. Um, so we have received a report from San Leandro Leadership Committee. Um, I'm sure Dr. Uh, Abzali will give more details on that report, so I'm not going to go over it um, verbally today. Uh, MAC has also received um, updates regarding uh, multiple department chair searches that we have going on. We have a department chair search uh, for the Department of Medicine, for the Department of Orthopedics, for the Department of Anesthesia, and we're working on launching the department, uh, the department chair search for the Department of Emergency Medicine. So um, we had an excellent discussion during the MEC um, related to um, this searches. The updates that the updates that I have is that we did identify a, can, a final candidate for the Department of Anesthesia chair position. Um, more to come on that, but hopefully we're in the last stages of um, making this finalized. Um, a wonderful candidate. I'm excited to have this candidate on board if she chooses to join us. Um, there were concerns expressed uh, regarding sort of the, the workload and the support for the, some of our chairs, which I outlined um, under our key concerns. And since we're talking about it, I might just sort of jump to that concern. Um, we had a discussion um, with MEC and the system leadership um, about the fact that we somewhat struggling with the, our recruitment efforts for um, some department chairs. Uh, and the part of it seems to be the the imbalance, so to speak, of the clinical and administrative duties and um, where the candidates that we're interested in are sort of maybe thrown off by the amount of administrative work with not a, a perfect amount of administrative support for that role. So um, that seems to be stalling our recruitment efforts to an extent. Um, so um, we have discussed that extensively and we uh, discussed um, uh, possibly redefining uh, our department chair position description. We have uh, mentioned the uh, possibility of our chairs having an administrative partner, not to confuse with administrative assistant, more as an administrative non-clinical diet partner to help um, sort of move things along and support our chairs and be successful. So. Um, that's something that I wanted to mention today as a part of my report. Um, with the uh, Department of Emergency Medicine, we're putting together the committee, so we'll be starting recruitment efforts hopefully shortly. We did receive a department report from the Department of Anesthesiology with some updates that uh, were provided. Um, and moving on to our key concerns, I've mentioned one in terms of the department chair position description. Another one um, that still remains on the list is the provider burnout. We did take a deeper dive in some of the possible um, reasons for the provider burnout and how we can better support our providers. And we have identified that, again, a part of um, possible job dissatisfaction and the challenges that our providers experience is um, suboptimal practice support, whether it's on the inpatient or outpatient side. Um, 
some other issues that were mentioned were, um, um, for example, things like uh, lack of protected time for in-basket coverage, uh, management of sort of messages and um, charts that are coming through Epic. Uh, we have also discussed that our provider well-being committee is stretched pretty thin right now, and we may need to um, invest into uh, supporting that committee in a better way. Um, this committee uh, is focused on an impaired physician um, support in particular. Um, also, again, lack of um, optimal administrative support for leaders uh, was mentioned, uh, including medical directors, division chiefs. So all that seems to be contributing to provider burnout in addition to, on top of uh, significantly more intense clinical load while, we, while in the pandemic. Um, and then the other two concerns that I uh, listed here are pretty much carrying, they're, they're being carried over from the previous discussions. Um, again, Alameda Health System governance structure, just sort of waiting on more updates. Uh, and we understand it's gonna take a while. Um, and COVID-19 surge and stuff and shortages, though improving, are still, um, still affecting our medical staff. Um, so on this, uh, I'm going to complete my report and I'm open to any questions. Thank you, Dr. Williams. That was, uh, that was a very robust report. Thank you. Trustee Esteen, any questions for um, Dr. Williams? Yeah, you mentioned about um, the administrative skill set and the, the dyads. What is the process for helping medical professionals develop those skills? Well, I, I think we that we that sort of um we're beginning to think about it and discuss it. Essentially, uh, what was brought up is that a chairs, uh, especially chairs of a, of large departments like internal medicine for uh, medicine, sorry, for example, um, who have hundreds of uh, providers, multiple locations, multiple sites, um, they and still doing clinical work because they're physicians, they just, they need to have um, a partner who will, will be um, supporting their leadership efforts um, on the administrative side of things in terms of, I guess, sort of moving things through the system, um, some project management, some, some uh, scheduling, structural support. So uh, tasks like that, and it's a very crude description, but um, these, are the, these are some of the ideas that came up in that discussion. I, I think it definitely should get everyone's attention that, that nearly 40% of, of our departments uh, in, in, at, at Highland slash San Leandro are have open searches for the, for their chairs. So I think there's opportunity to consolidate and inspire and define our, our medical leadership within this organization. Mr. Fratsky, sir. I just wanted to augment um, to a little more on trust, Trustee Esteen's comment about how do our physicians get that administrative acumen. And of course, one way is to partner them with an administrator who can help mentor them as well as a physician mentors the administrator around the clinical care. But also um, I'm seeing a lot of physicians in leadership positions go back and get certification in leadership. I'm seeing some going back and getting their master's degrees. Um, we also need to internally, I think, develop um, by way of our leadership academy um, courses that we can put physicians and um, administrative partners through maybe together 
Um, we've had some recent discussion about this. I'm not sure our Leadership Academy, as good as it is now, always um, uh, educates our docs around the unique nuances of being a physician leader. And I think that's an important piece that we can do internally as well. Thank you, Mr. Frasky. Mr. Jackson. I wanted to just focus on one aspect that Dr. Williams mentioned, which was this is an, a partner and not an executive assistant, if you will, um, which is, it's very different. Executive yeah. assistants are, are very important, but they are um, kind of, they're, they're very different than the collegial role that is envisioned here, which is, uh, you know, somebody who has a specialty and expertise in the administrative processes and can augment the physician leaders and take that burden off of them and allow them to function in their clinical capacity as, as a leader. And so I just, I wanted to make sure that that distinction was clear to this body. Yeah. Dr. Tornabene. Thank you. Uh, in addition, I just wanted to share that part of the immediate outcome out of this great discussion that occurred at the Medical Executive Committee was that we are going to be, because in particular, it was around the discussion about the chair of orthopedics and the challenges with recruiting that individual. So we're going to be creating a task force focus initially first on, on how do we support you know, administratively the chair of orthopedics and what does that look like? But the print, we have to, out of that, develop a set of principles around how do we add this administrative support to our physician leaders and you know, determine, is it service line, is it departmental, et cetera, all of those items that will come out of this work. Thank you, Dr. Tornabeni. And, and in follow-up to, to Evelyn's comments, I think many, many of the world's best organizations, uh, the Mayo, the Cleveland Clinic, Partners Health, uh, the Brigham and uh, Mass General, UCSF, they, there's a tendency to, to, to elevate from within. And that's through the development of, of leadership, defined leadership academies. This is no easy lift for an organization. To, you're basically building a school within the organization for that. And, uh, but, but I think uh, for those who've done it, the payoff uh, has been down the road. This is probably a decade payoff, right, Mr. Frasky, to, to build and to pay off. But I think those organizations who've done it have been have been quite successful at doing. It. I think, uh, you know, we we I think we have plenty of opportunities to start small and in follow up to what Dr. Tornabeni was talking about. We have a lot of good bones here to start off on things and then and then to be more rigorous in how we do that. I think would be great. Um, yeah, can I just say one more thing? You know, I yes. kind of felt like I was asking a simple question and the answers I got was so thoughtful. Uh, and it also seems very clear that, as you said, the Leadership Academy <clears throat> might be a strategic goal uh, that we want to outline as we go through the strategic planning process uh, this summer. And, uh, you know, maybe it's already there, but just to formalize it, because it pipeline is always something that uh, helps to benefit organizations. And as you're saying, uh, promoting from within, in order to do so, we have to make sure we're building the skills. So I love the idea, the Leadership Academy. Thank you, Trustee Estine. Um, uh, let the minutes reflect, Trustee Banerjee has arrived. Good evening, Trustee Banerjee. Um, uh, we are now at a quorum. 
I, I think I'm gonna uh, allow, uh, I would, uh, sorry, I, I would like us to complete our medical staff reports, then we'll jump back to consent and uh, approve that, so if that's okay. Um, Dr. Afzali, if you wouldn't mind going next, that would be great. And thank you, Dr. Williams, for that, for inspiring that discussion. Uh, of course, good evening, everyone. Um, the leadership committee meeting uh, was uh, this past uh, uh, February. Um, I have a couple of app updates uh, that are also summarized in, in, the, in the packet. Um, the uh, administrative <coughs> reports included a uh, summary of the CDPH and TALUS survey, uh, which uh, has uh, uh, completed uh, from CDPH perspective, and we are awaiting uh, CMS review. Uh, so, uh, sort of uh, holding our breath on, on, on that response. A couple of learning points that were taken from that was uh, uh, involved patient arrival uh, via ambulance and uh, delayed arrival into EPIC. Uh, so we're working with the, uh, with the teams to uh, make sure that we uh, arrive patients as they, uh, as they uh, reach our grounds uh, so that they are on the tracker and identifiable by all members of the care team um, uh, and therefore medical screening exams can be, can be done even if it's on the EMS rig. Um, uh, signage uh, was modified uh, in terms of location and, and visibility within the ED. Um, and uh, a related item uh, of the EMS hard offload policy, uh, another item we are uh, sort of holding our breath for uh, set to go live on March 1st. I appreciate admin responses and uh, getting uh, tents set up, which can be used as secondary areas where we can offload patients. Uh, much uh, in terms of uh, sort of uh, administrative tasks remain in uh, identifying staff to be able to uh, monitor patients when they're placed into these tents. But uh, the first step is uh, up and, uh, and live. Um, the uh, next item uh, I'd like to bring your attention to is the, uh, under uh, key point number five, the emergency department uh, update. Uh, the emergency arrival and triage that I've mentioned uh, a couple of times in the past couple of months, uh, construction was set to begin on the 15th uh, and the panels are up. Uh, we are using the new process and getting some great feedback from staff on how to improve it. Uh, our overall hope is that we are, uh, are going to move forward uh, in the right direction uh, with uh, the most important thing in mind uh, being our patients um, and their uh, health and, and, and safety and uh, uh, improved experience. So the overall goals of, the, of this project is to, uh, one, improve the patient experience um, and minimize the number of stops uh, or stations that they have to visit. Uh, before getting uh, getting care, um, uh, and the hope is that that stop is just one, um, so that everybody sort of convenes on the patient when they arrive into these pods uh, to get done, uh, say uh, whether it's triage or registration uh, or the medical screening exam by the providers. Um, the the hope is that this will improve a couple of metrics. Uh, the overarching goal is to improve their time uh, to getting studies done, to getting tests done, to getting medical screening exams done. Uh, time to arrival is uh, will hopefully improve with this process. Time to imaging, testing, 
uh, EKGs to improve the overall length of stay should therefore uh, improve in the emergency department and uh, uh, hopefully help with some of the um, uh, extended stays in, in the ED by getting some of the labs and imaging done early. Uh, the uh, other uh, big uh, goal of the project is to have a, have a team approach, uh, cohesive approach to patient arrival that includes registration, uh, the ED tech, uh, the triage nurse, and then subsequently uh, a provider to do the medical screening exam, uh, at least during the most busy hours of the day between uh, 9 a.m. and uh, 1 a.m. Um, the last item uh, on uh, that I want to mention was the hospitalist report. There was a lot of uh, uh, mention of uh, interest in point of care ultrasound usage, uh, which I think is very exciting uh, as ultrasound becomes more of a uh, standard for inpatient care as well. Uh, there's hope that the new system-wide ultrasound director can play a more uh, proactive role in establishing a program for the inpatient providers to become credentialed uh, in point-of-care ultrasound uh, and its utilization. Um, and then there's uh, some uh, additional items regarding the SNF transfer delays, which you've heard plenty about, uh, so I won't go into. And I'll pause here for any comments or questions. Thank you, Dr. Fazali. Dr. Fazali, for our lay audience, could you, could you, could you help inform us why point of what point of care ultrasound is and why that might be helpful on for for our medical service? Um, in the emergency medicine department, uh, it, it's is where it, it was born and where it's uh, utilized uh, most most often. Um, now we have standard ultrasound coverage, uh, business hours, eight a.m. to <clears throat> about four thirty p.m. Um, now, uh, during those times, or even after those times, uh, the studies we can do are, are pretty limited uh, and basically limited to life-threatening conditions like ovarian torsion or ectopic pregnancies. Um, now, if I was able to do uh, some of the standard ultrasounds, uh, such as looking at a gallbladder, uh, or even doing a basic echo to look at a patient's capacity, uh, heart capacity, and uh, uh, whether they're in heart failure, uh, or potentially uh, prone to heart failure, uh, there's a lot of helpful information that can be taken from that. And with point-of-care ultrasound, uh, basically there's a ba basic layout of studies that can be done as well as images that can be captured uh, and not only help with clinical decision-making and uh, improve uh, uh, flow of patients and uh, not having to call in the ultrasound tech to get a formal study, uh, there's also an opportunity for billing. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a Highland study that was done, uh, an estimate before they launched it some years ago. I uh, won't go into specifics, but it was in the six figures uh, that they were able to build for this. So, um, or I believe higher than that. Uh, Nikki, if you have any insight on that, um, be helpful. But Ultrasound uh, at Alameda and San Leandro will hopefully be launching uh, in August, when we have our uh, ultrasound director position, uh, which has been accepted, uh, launching. And the other thing that we can do with uh, point of care ultrasound is, uh, and this is the critical one, uh, is procedures, uh, whether it's ultrasound guided uh, lines or um, uh, abscess uh, IND uh, or uh, nerve blocks. 
Um, so uh, a huge role for ultrasound to play uh, with, with point of care. On the inpatient side, uh, they have a lot of uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, paracentesis and thoracentesis that can be done uh, pretty, uh, pretty quickly if they had the training and availability of point of care ultrasound. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, I was just going to add for a point of care ultrasound that studies have also shown it's a it's really important for patient satisfaction and it's an incredible tool for patient education. You can real time show them the functionality of their heart. You can real time show them, you know, what their kidneys are looking like if there's flank pain and, you know, kidney stones as part of the differential. So the the ways that we could talk about point of care ultrasound is endless, but overall it's it's a huge positive entity. And I'm really glad as Dr. Avzali says that the administration is supporting this. Excellent. Any other comments for Dr. Avzali's report? All right, barring none, that's a great segue uh, into Dr. Joshi's chief of staff report for Alameda Hospital. Yes, thank you everyone. Uh, just like Dr. Williams, we have changed the format a little bit uh, to try to make it useful and informative. So we wanted to first talk, you know, um, issues related to quality and patient safety. And in our MEC meeting last week, we talked a lot about um, issues that are related to patients' quality and safety, uh, such as access to echo and ultrasound. So it was a good, robust conversation. Another important thing is that we remain ready for joint commission. Uh, we are still in the window, so we are working with Nilda and her team to remain regulatory ready at all times. In terms of operations, hospital throughput had been significantly impacted by COVID, and we'll, we are still emerging from that. One of the things that it highlighted is that our hospital surge planning that we had done about in the beginning of the pandemic, now two years ago, uh, really needs to be looked at at a uh, system level and needs to be looked at, especially when issues like staffing are part of the things that would impact us. So we're working with uh, Mario Harding, our CAO, on that. So that's a very good thing. Um, some strengths I wanted to particularly highlight is that the Alameda Hospital Stroke Program continues to do great things. Uh, I believe this Thursday, our stroke coordinator, Rebecca, will be giving a talk in the Alameda community. Uh, I believe it's about recognizing symptoms of stroke in the community. So really, really happy. Uh, Re Rebecca Solomon is a great person who is heading up our stroke program and I can't speak well enough about her. I'm very happy to work with her. Another outreach that we're doing is that Alameda Hospital will have their Red Cross Community Blood Drive March 3rd. So that's gonna make us very happy. Some areas of opportunity, uh, patient experience. So um, we've convened a small group to look at our patient experience committee that had started about a year and a half ago, working with Mario and Olivia Kreeble from the patient experience group to see what could we do to improve upon what we had started, where we can take it. And then under the direction of Dr. Tornabene, we're also working from the angle of physicians, what we can do to improve patient experience by primarily focusing on physician communication. So um, I list this as an opportunity because we have just started at least in terms of the angle for the physicians. And I'm very much looking forward to what we will be able to accomplish from that. 
Uh, I also want to list another area of opportunity is the Workplace Violence Committee that Mario Harding started under uh, with partnership of Low Loft, Row Lofton, and I'm very excited about they, what they will be presenting. This committee is system-wide, uh, but does have impact at Alameda Hospital. Some key concerns, the ambulance offloading, March 1st is the date that they are going to be starting the ambulance offloading. I know that the administration remains just as concerned as we are in the emergency department. There was just another series of meetings that happened today. So we're exploring all options and that includes putting up a tent, but who would man the tent? What would patient flow look like? Uh, we're gonna to have to engage with our hospitalists to see what we could do to decompress the emergency department. But none of this would not be possible without the support of the administration and system-wide support, which I'm really, really happy that we have and we continue to have. Um, imaging and diagnostics continues to be a key concern. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, you know, as Dr. Zali mentions, ultrasound is very important for us, but the text that we have in our system and staffing for our text has also has limits, just like everything else. So currently our echo coverage and our ultrasound coverage at Alameda Hospital is not as robust as we would like it to be. A lot of it is outside of our drug control because it's staffing related, uh, but we need to work within our system. So specifically with Highland Hospital and the leaders there in terms of how do we get our patients the studies that they need so that we can you know, get to the diagnostics and treat them with the necessary medications and treatments that they need, but also for patient satisfaction, reducing length of stay, increasing our throughput. So these things are all very important. And lastly, access to subspecialists. So with Dr. Williams, we're working on e-consults, which is our ability to schedule outpatient appointments for the patients that we see both inpatient and in the emergency department. Uh, with nephrology, Dr. Tona Benning has taken the lead to address uh, what would have been a gap in coverage starting sometime in spring. So she's been working to get another group that's excellent to provide coverage at Alameda Hospital. And then radiology, um, uh, VRAD, about um, in the recent months has talked about changing the contract. And so what would radiology coverage look like, which uh, we don't need an in-house person 24 hours, but we certainly need access to radiology 24 hours a day. And that's the conclusion of my report. Happy to answer any questions. Trustees, uh, uh, first, uh, any questions of Dr. Joshi's report? I'm really concerned about the EMS change and uh, the impact that that's gonna have. Um, putting up a tent. I, I don't even know if I have a specific question, just the entire situation is incredibly concerning. Um, I had a conversation earlier today with someone from the, the Board of Supervisors staff and asked about legal ramifications and whether or not we could really stop this from happening because it feels so problematic. And I'm sure you guys have explored all of that. Um, I'm just really, really concerned. Yeah, I think the concern really also is, you know, aside from the obvious, what it comes down to is if a patient cannot be offloaded from an ambulance and put into the waiting room, it means that they're unstable for some reason. And so now when you are pushing this one hour time limit, you're putting it onto an emergency department that's already full. Is it full because of space? Is it full because of staffing? Either way, there are something hard that we can't get around that is preventing the patient from coming inside. So that's that's why it feels so scary uh, because it's an indication of an already 
precarious situation? I think the concern, concerns are shared by anyone who leads or operates within the system. So I, uh, I, I know we have a very highly skilled executive leadership team who's been thinking about this deeply and uh, we'll probably be hearing some operational reports in, in very short order on this, on this issue. And, and, and of course, uh, we're, this circumstance is not unique to Alameda Health System. Uh, this is, I, I think there's opportunity for all the health systems to have discussion and impact and influence at the legislative level as well. Dr. Joshi, can you tell me about the, uh, uh, the blood drive. Um, is this blood, will this blood be used only for Alameda Hospital? Is it going back generally to Red Cross? Because I know uh, there have certainly been uh, blood shortages within our system. Can, do, you know, do you know about the focus of this blood drive? Is it Red Cross blood? I'm not 100% sure. Um, I know that it's Red Cross blood. I know blood generally stays local, mm. um, but I'm not sure. And I can try to find who would be able to specifically answer those questions. And I believe Veronica Shelton might be the one who would know more. I, I imagine that, uh, that, that we don't keep our own blood supply, it's given to us, but you know, I could probably con nine trustees into giving blood yeah, if it was gonna be given back into our system. Uh, uh, you know, blood, sweat, and tears um, for, for all these trustees. Um, but that, that would be just, inter it's an interesting FYI, don't kill yourself on this Dr. Joshi, but it would be an interesting FYI and are there opportunities for us to have our own blood drives? Because I know we are using uh, lots of blood product in this system and I, we keep getting messages from Dr. Ng on, on uh, how tight we are. And uh, maybe this is an opportunity for us to help ourselves if that's legal and compliant. Um, um, and I don't know any of that. Any other comments or questions for Dr. Joshi? Thank you for very much, medical staff leaders. Uh, we appreciate your voice and keep coming back. Um, with that, we'll close out item C. We're, now that we have quorum, we're gonna jump back to item B, bravo, the consent agenda. Um, the consent agenda uh, this evening has three elements in it. B1, minutes from our last meeting. B2, policies and procedures, there are nine of them. And B3, medical staff privilege forms, there's one of them, hospitals, multi-facility. So trustees, uh, this consent agenda is before you. Before entertaining a motion to approve the entirety of this consent agenda, do you feel that there are any items that need to be pulled for discussion or review? Not from me. Trustee um, Esteen, with that, I'll, I'll entertain a motion. I'll move that we approve the consent agenda. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. I'll second it. Uh, Madam Clerk, roll call, please. Yes. Um, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. And Trustee Jensen is still out, so, but the motion does pass. Thank you very much. All right, we took care of business. Now we'll hop, skip, and jump back to item, back uh, under our agenda. We'll go to item D. Uh, this is our patient safety regulatory affairs and quality True North metric dashboard. Remember our quality team is led by our chief medical officer, Dr. Felicia Tornabene. We have um, Anna Torres, who is our VP of quality. And then of course we have a great team with uh, Darshan Graywall, Nilda Perez, and Annette Johnson. So I'll give uh, Dr. Tornabene the helm on this one. Good evening. Great, thank you and uh, good evening. So with that, I'm actually very excited to um, hand this over to Ms. Anna Torres 
who will, our VP of quality, who will be giving the report tonight. That was a great <laughs> leadership move, Dr. Tonabene. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. So I will start with the True North metrics and I'm going to share my screen so that everyone can follow along. Thank you, Anna. Ms. Torres. Welcome. Can everyone see that? We're good to go. Great. Okay, so this is our December data. And um, from a quick glance, you can see that December was not a great month for us. Um, looking under the access pillar, we have the first two metrics, which are days to third next available appointment, um, not meeting. Uh, the, the issue here was that we, um, due to the clinic closures with around the holidays, uh, the appointments were a little harder to come by. But if you look at the fiscal year to date data and compare it to the goal, we are virtually there. So we think that probably in the next month or two, we're gonna uh, convert these two to greens. Um, as far as the other uh, metrics on the access, uh, under the access pillar, we've got the length of stay and the throughput metrics. Um, again, these did not meet goal. Um, we did um, obviously have trouble with our Omicron surge as did every other hospital. So when we look forward to January, we don't anticipate that we're gonna meet goals um, with these. We do have um, in December, the care optimization project kicked off. So as we move further down the line with the metrics that is expected to have a positive impact. Um, but certainly not in the next month uh, and maybe two as we get through the Omicron uh, search. Uh, moving down to the quality pillar. The first one is the, uh, the quit measures and you see that's a red. Uh, the good news here is that the COVID mitigation plan was approved by CMS. Um, and this was, um, what they did is they modified the metrics because uh, due to the COVID impact on a lot of the quality metrics, many hospitals were not meeting. And in fact, they were having an adverse effect. Uh, COVID had an adverse effect on the clinical uh, quality metrics. So some of the measures were modified and because that was just approved, I think it was approved earlier this month. So that's that's big news. Um, we're expected to meet 100% of the metrics. So we would get 100% of the funding. So that's that's huge for us. Uh, readmissions, we, we will be meeting um, or we are meeting. And um, again, December was a bad month, but um, it looks like we're, we are going to be able to keep that as a green. Hospital acquired infections, we did well in December. Um, we have two new programs that we're working through. Actually, I should say PI programs. It's the CLAPSI and the uh, SSI uh, PI programs because we do have elevated infections in those two areas. So uh, those teams kicked off in January. So again, as we move further down, um, we do expect that to uh, see those metrics get better. Ms. Torres, can you remind the audience what CLAPSI and SSI mean? Yes, sorry. CLAPSI is the central line associated bloodstream infection. Um, and it's really an infection of the bloodstream caused by a device. So a lot of the, um, the actions that were taken is if we can get the devices out and that, and that same goes for CAUTI, get the devices out, they won't cause the infection. So a lot of our initial action is focused on ensuring that those devices are only going into the patients when they're needed and they're coming out as soon as possible. Um, in addition to that, there's some maintenance that needs to occur. So the teams are evaluating that piece. 
SSI is a surgical site infection. So we have an elevated rate there. So we are looking at the entire bundle um, from beginning to end. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Those two kicked off in January. So again, we won't see the immediate impact because it takes a while to, to work through all the data and put the processes into place. Um, but the processes we're looking at are all evidence-based. So once we get back on track and we will um, ensure that we have a sustainability plan in place so that we don't end up back here again. Uh, then the last section is the patient experience, which um, again, due to the Omicron surge, we're not expecting that we're gonna see uh, this data get any better in the next uh, month or two. So here the action plans continue. The primary um, action plan really is to improve uh, communication. So we're using the gift, which I think everyone's aware of. It's great, introduce, for, and thank you. Um, along with um, hourly rounding and updating the whiteboards. Um, so that is the crux with the uh, patient experience because evidence shows that communication um, appropriate communication to the patients uh, does improve the patient experience. Any questions on the True North metrics? Ms. Torres, may I take a little bit of a pause here? Yes. And, and uh, in person respond to your very nice email that I just looked at uh, about an hour ago. Um, Ms. Torres appropriately considered that this is the right time for us to start thinking about our next set of true north metrics for the from a quality perspective. I'll remind everyone in the audience that this true north metric dashboard for quality are, are, are sort of the, the big items which roll up to the board. Each of these items are supported by lots of other. There's, you know, there's hundreds of other data points. These are the ones we've selected. Every year, uh, the quality committee selects quality relevant um, items. These 10, were selected by this committee last June, June, yeah, last June. So these have, they, we previously had 13 and they're down to 10. So Ms. Torres contemplated earlier today, hey, what should we be thinking about with the True North metric dashboard, which is actually perfect timing. We're in February right now, historically, and not every year, we've sort of had a presentation in April or May and made a vote in June. And then Ms. Torres's other contemplation, another great one was, are there adjustments to be made in the context of a strategic plan, which is in process? And I think these are all great things. As we eyeball this report, you'll see along the far left column, that column there's uh, access, there's quality, and then there's experience. These are three of the six pillars under the pillar system, which we've lived under since about 2011 it's possible that our pillars might change uh, and, and maybe even simplify, uh, and that would be great. You'll, you'll also see as we move along that there are, are letters like P, P, S, E1, E2, um, uh, TT, and, and everyone uh, who's been coming to this committee since 2018 knows that we've been trying to uh, spread the gospel of Don Berwick's steep construct for quality, safety, timeliness, uh, effectiveness, efficiency, equity, and patient-centeredness. So I think these are great contemplations, uh, Ms. Torres, and we, 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 we look forward to the guidance with, of you, Dr. Tornabene, 
and, and the rest of the, the team for what may be looking forward. One thing which I think is, which is glaringly missing um, from our True North metric dashboard is really a good equity measure. Mm-hmm. And and I uh, we've we've uh, we've literally been talking about this one for a couple of years. Uh, I would suggest that we cannot move forward without a good equity measure. I don't know what that is, um, but but I think it's something that we we are. I think we must do. And and I'm 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 relatively confident that uh, diversity, equity, inclusion are going to be a central point of discussion in our strategic plan. So hopefully. I could have typed that all out for you, Ms. Torres, but that, 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 that I, want, I wanted us all to have that discussion. So I'll open it up for uh, Dr. Tornabene to comment and other trustees uh, before we move off the dashboard. Thank you for bringing this up. I, I, it actually feels really exciting to be at this moment of creating a strategic plan that will help us then flow into what are our quality metrics that we really need to be following at the board level. So I love the question and and perhaps um, propose really waiting for the the kind of the final set of discussions around the strategic plan. And then we can come back to the board with a proposal uh, of metrics and, and discussion that we can adjust from there based on the feedback. I think that's I think that's appropriate plan. I saw a thumbs up from Trustee Banerjee. Sorry, I have a different view. Uh, Trustee Esteen, any comments? Sorry, I'm looking for my view here. Um, um, so I think that looks like a, a great discussion. I and and I and I think also as we move forward, it's, it would be nice to have a dashboard for which people can understand. You know. Mm-hmm. QIP metrics, what's that really mean to, to our layperson? You know, never happen events. We have zero never happen events. Might be something that people can get their brain around. You know, um, uh, hospital infections, they could get their brain around. So I think we have a lot of great work to do on our, on our next iteration. So look forward to hearing from this team on uh, suggestions for that move. Great, thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks for hijacking, Ms. Torres. Back to you. No, I appreciate the response. Thank you. Okay, I'll stop sharing. I'll move on to the patient safety report now. Um, I'll, I'm going to start with the good news. Um, the Health Services Advisory Group, who's the QIO for California, um, awarded our post-acute care team a certificate for their COVID vaccination rates. So that's the primary vaccination rates, and it's for both uh, staff and residents. In addition, in hospital compare, nursing hospital compare, um, our post-acute care also um, had very high booster rates for both residents and staff, um, higher than California in national average. So just wanted to share that good news of what they're doing um, to keep our patients safe in the post-acute area. Um, Now I'll get into some opportunities for improvement. So um, as far as patient safety, our harm rate um, is 3.9% this month, um, almost 4%. Last month, it was 4%. We had 11 harm events, uh, two of which uh, caused, they were F events, and they caused temporary harm, um, but they did require intervention. And then we had nine events that were category E, which means it was temporary harm to the patient. Now, five of those nine events were related to skin and falls. 
Um, and the, that's a trend that we're seeing in November. As I said, the harm rate was 4% with 19 um, E events and 12 of the 19 events were related to skin and falls. So um, nursing has actually taken this under, under their wing and they're looking at it. So for falls, there is a new policy um, that was, I, I don't know if it was approved yet, but it's, I think it's going for approval maybe at the next meeting and they're working with NILDA. They have a debrief tool that they're working with and they're getting embedded into MIDAS um, and doing some retraining. Um, so we're looking forward to improvements with that. As far as skin, uh, nursing does have a new nursing review committee coming up and they will be taking the skin care cases and they will be reviewing them at their nursing uh, committee. Um, and again, looking for trends and identifying areas where they can um, improve processes. So we'll, we're really happy about that. Um, lastly, under patient safety, I'll mention uh, the culture of safety survey, which will open next month and will be open for about three weeks. I'm sorry, it opens next week, um, open for about three weeks from February 28th through March 21st. Uh, the intention is, again, to focus on teamwork and safety climate. Number one, we don't want to lose momentum, but those two areas are also typically um, closely associated with the overall culture of the organization. Um, and finally, I'll move on to the regulatory re report. We had one reportable event. Um, Dr. Afzali already discussed the Antala survey, so I won't mention that. But what I will say is that the regulatory uh, team did have a brief debrief. And a lot of what Dr. Afzali uh, discussed that was um, put into place at San Leandro, our regular te regulatory team is working with the other hospitals to ensure that um, whispering and standardizing the practices that need to be in place so that we don't have another Intala issue at the other hospitals. Um, and as Dr. Yoshi mentioned, we are still waiting for joint commission at Alameda and we're still waiting for our stroke survey. Our core um, survey window is open and um, we're very fortunate to be able to have our joint commission consultant be out here um, early next month. Uh, to read, to look at high-risk processes and no standards. And that concludes my report. Are there any questions? Thank you, Ms. Torres. Trustees, any questions for Ms. Torres? And of course, I wanna open up for comments, uh, supporting comments from either Ms. Perez, Ms. Graywall, or Ms. Johnson, if there are any other comments in support of this, uh, of this uh, important report. I see some head nodding, I see some head nodding, okay. Um, anything else? Okay, quality report, this is why we're here. So thank you, thank you for that work that you, that, that, that you all do continuously. We know that this is hard stuff. So with that, we're going to close out item D and boy, we're moving nicely on schedule. Now always sort of comes the marquee evening uh, event, which is the quality improvement project. Um, just as a, a reminder, we, we started this a few months ago, maybe five months ago. And this is a, a, a report on something that strives to improve quality within the system. This is Dr. Tornabene's agenda item. She gets to select and she has a working list and her knowledge of the system to do this. So, I'm gonna give uh, the mic to Dr. Tornabeni to introduce. Okay, great. This is one of my favorite parts of the month always. 
So yeah. it's my absolute pleasure um, to introduce Dr. Natalie Curtis, our Medical Director of Ambulatory Health Outcomes, and also Eric Mahone, our Ambulatory Care Pharmacy Manager. And they are going to be telling us about the practice of, quote, max packing, which is use and how they utilize COVID vaccine clinics to address overdue health topics. So um, with that, Dr. Curtis, um, please, Dr. Curtis, let me know if you want me to share the slides. Um, I think we will be uh, sharing the slides. Thanks so much, Dr. Torinvenny. Sure. Okay, wonderful. And thank you so much, Trustee um, Bouquet, and thank you to the board for inviting us to present today. We're really Looking forward to presenting to you this um, pilot that we did in our COVID vaccine clinics, which we call Max Packing. And we're going to go through utilizing COVID vaccine clinics to address overdue health topics. Next slide, please. So, um, the problem statement that kind of started off this project was a reflection on our performance for our quality measures. Um, so our problem was noted to be that performance on ambulatory quality measures has declined since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic due to a switch from in-person care to telemedicine. Next slide, please. So to illustrate this point, I wanted to show um, you all an image of, you know, the breakdown of care, the in-person care and telemedicine and how that has changed since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. So as we can see pre-pandemic, the blue bar represents that about 100% of our care was really provided in person. We had very, very little telemedicine before the pandemic. We can see then as we transition to fiscal year 2021, we, you know, along with all other healthcare systems, really had to pivot and really look at care delivery systems with the shelter in place order and adopted telemedicine. Now, this bar shows about a 40% um, usage of telemedicine in our ambulatory encounters, um, which is actually an average over the years. So this number changed and peaked at about 80% telemedicine, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic and, and leveled out to around 40%. And now in fiscal year 2022, we've settled out to about 20% telemedicine now and 80% in person. So really different from where we were before. Next slide, please. So this is important because, you know, when we were thinking about care and quality before, everything that we did was really in reliant on a touch point with the patient. Everything really hinged upon in-person visits, be it blood pressure control, needing to have a manual measurement of a patient sitting in front of you, or depression screening. We only did this as part of our intake process for in-person appointments with screening forms. Cervical cancer screening, you know, you need to be in person in order to have a gynecologic exam to collect the pap smear. And diabetes control and colon cancer screening both require a lab test, which again, the patient has to be physically within our walls in order to complete this care. Next slide, please. So how did, ooh, sorry. So how did this impact things? So this is meant not to get into like the details of the numbers, but to really illustrate what happened to our performance on some standard primary care measures with this transition. So we've taken a snapshot of three measures, colon cancer screening, depression screening, and blood pressure control. Um, we can see that for all three measures, our performance 
over the years that we adopted Prime, which was really a movement to you know, pay attention to quality measures, really kind of leverage data to improve the care of our patients was, was doing amazingly, like in a lot of cases, exceeding the 90th percentile. And then we see there's a dramatic pivot point with two key events. The first being an orange bar, yellow, goldenrod color, which reflects the switch to Epic which significantly impacted our, how we looked at data, how we gave feedback. And then the green bar most significantly, which perpetuated this downward um, you know, slope for these performance on these measures was the shelter in place order for the pandemic. So huge impact. Um, next slide, please. So we really kind of thought that we needed to do something and then an opportunity presented itself, which I'm gonna pass the baton to my colleague, Eric Mahone, who's gonna take over from here. Yeah, so we were um, very fortunate to have some space at Highland uh, in the conference uh, rooms there in the, in the Highland Care Pavilion to open up a uh, vaccination service for both patients and for employees, um, sometimes separate, sometimes together. And uh, we had a very diverse team, multidisciplinary team, pharmacists, uh, pharmacy students, physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, physician assistants, RNs, LDNs, everyone in the entire organization pitched in to produce uh, so far about 42,000 COVID vaccination visits. And uh, we, so we, we took this uh, time as the COVID rates, uh, COVID vaccination rates were going up. We, um, we had about 80 to 100 patients coming into our clinic each day and we, we, we saw the opportunity to um, offer additional services as we had such a large and diverse team taking care of these patients. So the concept of max packing is, you know, it's not, uh, it's not new. It, the, the idea is quite simple in that we, uh, when patients are there, we, we want to offer them as many services as we can. We could not offer them um, full, a full visit, but there, there were things uh, such as being overdue for screening tests and other labs that were relatively easy to manage uh, and would help improve our, our rates of performance on some of our metrics. So the process we put in place represented here on the slide, and it, it was quite simple in design on, on purpose, which is just the, the patient presents for a scheduled or, or a walk-in visit um, the, the individual who's vaccinating that patient, when they are reviewing their record, um, they, they look for any labs pending for completion. And if there were labs due, then we instructed them to go to the lab. The lab was one floor above our clinic, and it was all, almost on the way out uh, of, of the center. So uh, that was the, the simple process that we followed. This could be followed by uh, the pharmacy student or uh, even the physician. So. Um, we, we try to keep it simple. Uh, one of the benefits of our investment in, in an EHR is that uh, we have bulk ordering in Epic. So this is a, a simple tool where we can design a report and make orders on hundreds of patients uh, for, for a variety of things. So we use this tool to impact uh, our, our efforts on the patients who are coming into the clinic. Dr. Curtis was kind enough uh, weekly to order labs 
uh, for diabetes surveillance and colon cancer screening uh, for all the scheduled patients for our clinic. So every week we would generate a list of patients coming in and schedule these, um, uh, order these labs so, so that patients would have them available. More patients would have labs available when they come in. Um, getting into some of the, the data on, on, did our patients actually go? Did, did they complete these labs? Um, you can see uh, here the, the, the x-axis is just the weeks, the time that we, we studied this. The y-axis is the percentage of patients who completed labs that were due. And uh, two takeaways from this slide, the range was about 14 to 30% of the people who were due for labs that were coming in completed the lab. And lastly, that the orange line represents uh, the bulk ordered labs, and the blue line represents more, more or less the total. So this shows you that almost all of the orders that were completed were from our bulk ordering, not from labs that already existed. So the, the overall percentage rates uh, uh, range from 15 to 30, roughly, and almost all of the completion was from the bulk ordering that we did prior to the visit. Uh, with any quality improvement uh, effort, we always want to make sure that we are studying and um, at least not worsening any sort of, um, you know, any sort of uh, discrepancy in, in our racial and ethnic groups in, in how the results come out. What we saw, uh, the green bar on top is the percentage of labs completed. The, the orange is the labs ordered but not completed. And this is breaking it down by um, our, the, with the four most uh, common groups that we have at our clinic, uh, we see very equal distribution of um, the completion rates for, for our patients when stratified by race and ethnicity. Similarly for language, we looked at English speakers and non-English speakers. And you can see that about 23% of English speakers and 23% of non-English speakers completed their labs. I'll pass it back to Dr. Curtis to finish off on the overall impact uh, for our metrics. Thanks so much. Um, so kind of taking this in context and kind of thinking back to those first graphs that we looked at with like the overall performance on our metric trajectory, we really always wonder like, did this make an impact on our metric performance overall? So this graph takes a snapshot looking at colon cancer screening rates and how it changed after this intervention. So the x-axis is time, y-axis is percent of patients who are due for colon cancer screening had screening completed. The dotted orange line is our performance target for the year and the blue line is our performance. Um, so you can see that around the time of um, max packing and that it started, this trajectory takes a sharp upturn. Um, do we think this is 100% because of max packing? No, I mean, within ambulatory, all of our quality improvement work, it's like, it, it, it's got multiple layers of this. There are multiple interventions that are going on at the same time, but we do think it isn't a coincidence that that uptick definitely starts and begins to pivot at that point, which we thought was notable. Next slide, please. Similarly, we looked at diabetes. Um, Diabetes control. So this is a metric that looks at the percent of patients who have an A1C greater than um, nine. So basically we want patients to be, um, oh, so sorry, it should be greater than nine. I apologize for that typo. Um, we want this number to be lower. So basically we want fewer patients 
um, you know, with an A1C of greater than nine, because greater than nine is considered, um, you know, suboptimal diabetes care. And so that, that trajectory going downward um, is preferred. Um, and so we can see similar to the colon cancer screening rates that at the time of COVID max packing, we can see that trajectory going down. And we think that a big driver of, of that metric performance actually was because of lapse of labs. So patients had had over a year from the last lab. So we think that getting labs done actually was a contributor to this measure as well. Um, Next slide. So, you know, in summary, we think that this intervention was very successful and we have a number of take home points that we would like to share. You know, this really showed us that every in-person encounter is an opportunity. It doesn't have to be a primary care visit. It can be any time a patient walks into our walls. And it really highlights the importance of investing in whole person care and thinking about, you know, meeting the patient where they are at the time and providing them with what they need. Another important point was that when seeing success in an intervention, we always need to consider looking critically at the data to ensure that the intervention you know, doesn't impact different population, di certain populations differently to widen a disparity. And then finally, there's outreach, there's value in outreaching to um, bring patients in we may not otherwise miss with current care delivery systems. You know, our community health outreach workers were pivotal in calling patients that you know, didn't actually always you know, regularly get care with us and brought them in and, and seized the moment for this opportunity. It was you know, COVID-19 vaccination in this case, but we'd, in the future, it could be another opportunity. Um, and just thinking about ways that we can creatively use outreach and our um, you know, amazing team of community health outreach workers to you know, improve the care of our patients overall. And I will stop there. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Trustees, other leaders, questions or comments? Let's go with first uh, Trustee Banerjee. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Dr. Curtis and uh, Dr. Mohan. Um, just that with so many folks uh, deferring treatment through the earlier part of this, this, this is so vital in so many ways to be able to and optimize their time as well, because trips to the hall, to the center are so much. So when they come in and just uh, where you were located, so it's for folks, they didn't have to navigate a whole lot to go and get the test. That's also important because you might lose some folks if, if they had to go to some other part of the campus. So very, uh, really great to hear that. Um, Two questions, and um, this might sound really uh, basic, but in the bulk um, ordering that you said, the bulk test, is it that you see, is it, a, is it the bulk of tests that you can order for a single patient, or do you see like a, 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 a you know, cohort of patients and that you do that? And the only reason that kind of... Um, <clears throat> Um, the trigger that for me was that in the regulatory reports where we were seeing that there were some unnecessary tests and things, and I'm all for like better to err on the side of get the test done because folks are generally, we have a patient population that doesn't get it. So more the better. And then was there any correlationship to that? And if so, like, how are you walking that line? Um. I think I can answer that question. Um, thanks so much for it. Um, so with the bulk order, all of our reports are built 
based on a care gap system. So what a care gap system is, is identifying patients on a specific registry. And then there are definitions on the registry that kind of identify certain things that need to happen. So for example, for the diabetes labs, we were only pulling reports of people that met criteria for one, they were on the diabetes registry. Um, and two, they hadn't had an A1C within the last six months. And then they would flag the report. And so we could only pull those patients. Um, so theoretically, as long as they had had the lab done, we wouldn't be, you know, doing a duplicative order. Um, the bulk order also has nice safeguards in that if there's already an order in place, it, it cancels out the order. Um, and, you know, so as to avoid, you know, having multiple orders, especially because we really wanted to make sure that the primary care provider was the person to order the complete the order if, if that's who originally ordered it. I think we had one situation in which there was kind of a rogue order that came in, um, but it was more as it was just a patient who was getting primary care elsewhere and just getting specialty care with us. But that was the one case that we learned of. Thank you so much. It's uh, it's great that there are so many checks and balances over there and also it triggers for who hasn't. So um, wonderful, thank you. Trustees, other questions or comments? Yeah, I would say that this is like model uh, public health behavior. You know, we wanna be able to catch patients where they're at and capture them in any given opportunity. Um, and COVID was so worrisome because people were really unable to come in. So I, you know, kudos to you for making the best out of this situation. Made lemonade. Yeah, and, and also such an ex great example of linkages, like how well the coordination of having the outreach folks do that and then the clinicians do this. So really a great example. Yeah, I, so I'll, I'll jump in and I'll say, I think this is an excellent, uh, uh, example of, of organizations being thoughtful about opportunity and opportunity cost and, and, and then getting the operations down. So I completely applaud this group. This is the kind of thinking which serves organizations. So my questions are, are two uh, to both Dr. Mahone and Dr. Curtis. What happens or what's your projection as COVID flu at COVID injections, uh, vaccinations as that falls and we lose opportunity for that? That's question one, and I'll stop, and then I'll have the question two. What happens as, as, as we're doing less COVID vaccinations, and this is our entree for max packing? I can answer, uh, I can comment on, on part of that at least, which is we, um, we do expect other vaccinations obviously to be needed. And so we're trying to be prepared to offer even more for our patients when they do come in um, to, our, to our central clinic as additional surges in vaccination occur. Um, in terms of how do, we, how do we pivot this or how do we transition this into other venues, mm -hmm. I, I very much do not have an answer for that, but I will say that that is something we are continually thinking about and working on is how do we get that exposure in the community um, how do we how do we have incentives for our patients to come in so that we can continue to do this this type of work? Um, I don't know if Dr. Curtis wants to add anything. Yeah, I have one other thing to add. I think another thing that we're really investigating is, you know, the care team extends beyond just 
primary care, you know, and, and in your PCP's office. And so we have a number of working groups that are dedicated to specific metrics. And, you know, they're, they're multidisciplinary teams in which you get to work with colleagues from like all different departments. And so we're just really kind of exploring opportunities for bringing all different, you know, license types, job types into kind of the idea and the momentum around like seizing every moment. So for example, with our mammography working group kind of talking about opportunities that, you know, when a patient comes in to schedule for their mammogram or for like comes in for an x-ray say, and they'll notice, oh, I see that you're also due for your mammogram. How can we help link you to this care? Now we see this and, and just kind of having it be on everybody's radar and really kind of having the the AHS community kind of collectively think about primary care and how we can improve the health outcomes of our patients. I, I would agree with that, Dr. Curtis, and then making it easy for people who don't practice care to click click the group order tab, you know? And yeah. I, I love this proof of principle because it sort of harkens to the work of one of my old colleagues, who you may know, Dr. Curtis, Michael Potter at UCSF, who worked in the family medicine department. In the late aughts, he developed a program called the flu fit program, which was when people came in for flu shots, that was the time that they asked them to get a fecal immunochemical test, a colorectal cancer screening test for the rest of the audience. So the flu fit program has been in place for years and it, it just goes to, uh, it, it was the proto max packing, although it was just fit. This is, this seems so much more robust. So I think that's a, a great opportunity. So second question is, uh, what, what would it take for this to be uh, uh, durable? I, I know both of you have a prodigious work ethic, but Dr. Curtis cannot order the max panel on every single person who does that. So how, how does this, is it poised to be sustainable? Yeah, um, well, so we have used this data and, and our findings here to help support um, two full-time physicians for COVID vaccination, flu vaccination, and preventative health um, at AHS at Highland, the Highland campus. And so those two folks, a pharmacist and a LVN, um, a nurse, are well positioned to continue this work um, based on um, some of you on this call's uh, um, support for that, those efforts. And um, we, are, we are planning to use them to continue to spread this type of work at our, at our COVID vaccination clinic. Um, that's only, of course, one, one piece to the puzzle, but um, at the Highland campus, uh, we, are, we, are, we are on our way and we're doing that. Yeah, that's great. And the, to think about how we could scale up and I know thinking, you know, we start small scale or fail, you know, and, uh, you know, think about our touch points. We have two, two major, three major entrees into our system, which are the emergency department, uh, be, uh, sorry, beyond primary care, primary care, of course, and phlebotomy and radiology, right? So, so think about uh, uh, where those opportunities might exist for, you know, someone being posted at that or being alerted at a phlebotomy check-in. But I, I, I am totally sold on this concept of Max packing. Hopefully, you trademarked that word. <laughs> um, Dr. Tornaveni, any wraparound statements for us as we close up on this uh, section? Just that I, I I love this program. I love the concept of you know meeting patients where they are in order to provide them the services that the the you know the preventative care. I love the thought also of 
these were patients that were coming to us, but are there other parts of the community where we might be, where we can actually reach our patients that are outside the walls of our system? And that really is, is an idea that I'd like to explore as well. Yeah, uh, this definitely a great proof of concept. And hopefully these ideas like this one get to go a little bit more viral within our system. Sorry, viral is the wrong word. <laughs> um, so uh, I think with that, um, I think we'll close out this uh, report. Thank you to Drs. Curtis and Dr. Mahone for that, for, that, for that great introduction. We hope to hear more later. We'll close out item E. Item F is our planning calendar. Our planning calendar is we're sort of right on pace, keeping our, 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 third, uh, our fourth week of the fourth Wednesday of the month. Um, uh, I don't really have any other new items on the planning calendar or issue tracking, save the discussion we had earlier this evening about we do need to be thoughtful about our true north metric dashboard items. And generally speaking, we approve those in June. Um, if, if, if things are going on pacing, it's my understanding from our CEO that uh, our uh, consultants uh, should deliver a strategic plan roughly late April. Uh, so that might poise us for a ni nice late May discussion about these true north metric items. So with that, we'll close item F. And that, that ends the open session items for the meeting while we actually ran a little bit ahead of time. And uh, we'll go into closed session. I anticipate the closed session will be maybe 20 minutes or so. Um, we'll come back and announce if there were any other actions. But if you're not here, that's OK. <laughs> I want you guys to have a great evening. And um, council. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. Uh, the quality committee of the Board of Trustees will now go into closed session to consider those items as stated on, on the agenda. Everyone have a great evening. <laughs>